0: Talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell, inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Here's Scott
2: Thompson. get are my Not much to say today, I guess. Good afternoon, it is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Weber on the board. I'm I'm reading notes already as I'm um, a... here, here's one coming in from Danny, and, and again, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. So if they say interest rates go up another half point, that one in four will have to sell the house because they are too far in debt. Wow, 200000 over the asking price, price poof, it's gone. Uh, then they'll have to work for another three, 30 years to make up for it. Some will never learn. Uh, interesting. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. And it started already. Uh, you can send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. All right, got another jam impact show for you today hope you hang around and uh, join us uh, and again uh, jump in and, and contribute to it we would love to hear from you poll question of the day uh, and you can find that on our twitter account uh, is cost of living stressing you out yeah i think it's stressing a lot of people out i think uh, and it has been for for quite a while uh, and certainly when you hear that uh, interest rates could jump again you're even talking like uh, not not half a point, three quarters of a point. Uh, in in the United States, uh, same sort of thing happening. So it'll be interesting to see uh, if Canada follows suit. It'll be interesting to see how uh, more unaffordable it can get before uh, we can get some action, some sort of and, and again, let's be honest, this is inflation. This is the cost of everything going up. But gas prices are really at the root because they touch everything in some way. Certainly along the, the uh, supply chain. So uh, continue. Continuing to rise. You know what? We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on uh, in this hour, coming up next with our first guest. And, you know, you think about this. What about if you're trying to run a delivery company or, um, you know, a trucking company or, you know, even Uber or, or, or anything like that where you have to people who mow lawns for a living? I mean, gas continues to go up and this is obviously doubling their costs as well. And is all of that getting passed on to the consumer? We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, Justin Trudeau coming back from the, uh, the summit of the Americas, uh, nothing really on, on gas prices or anything, but he does have COVID for the second time uh so you know that's just the way it is nowadays fully backs though he is and so uh apparently uh he's doing fine and uh resting comfortably and of course uh quarantining at this point but uh yeah down there visiting with uh with biden and the rest of them and uh, lo and behold he comes back and that's sometimes what happens when you travel uh you make contact and uh the prime minister coming down with a dose uh a second a second case of COVID 19 for him man i uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once is bad enough. All right. Uh, uh, We were talking about one in four uh, having to possibly sell their homes. Also a big news story. If interest rates continue to go up, uh, another continuing big story. And uh, uh, van, uh, we remember Toronto, the Toronto van killer. I don't even want to mention his name, but victim impact stations, uh, uh, victim impact statements are going on right now in a Toronto courthouse. We'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. And and obviously, as you could expect, some pretty uh, horrifying uh, stories coming out of there all right um also uh travel is continuing to be a big story we're going to uh, play you a report from Jennifer Harrington a clip from her and uh she's talking about how the uh, the relaxation which we're seeing now of uh of certain covid testing for those who have been vaccinated random testing um <laughs> It's a drop in the bucket. It'll help. It's a good thing, Um, but it's still not enough to keep uh, people moving through the airports. Listen to this.
3: It's great that they're doing something. This might be the most minor thing that they could do because in terms of wait times for travelers, it's the very last moment that you're kind of going to have to wait. Not everyone is experiencing it because it is randomized testing
2: so there you go uh a drop in the bucket as they say but uh i guess uh speeding things up a, a little better than than nothing at all uh as i mentioned still to come we're going to talk uh the ceo of hamilton taxi and what uh gas prices have met you know have meant uh to to him and his company we were talking to ron foxcroft uh on this weeks ago and he was saying like they can't even guarantee prices on you know they usually they'd sign a contract for the year or whatever we'll haul your goods blah 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 and they would take into account you know maybe a small increase but now obviously we're seeing increases uh in at the beginning of all this uh, several times a week and a few cents a shot so how do you regulate that how do you run a business when your business involves Uh, a vehicle and in consuming gasoline of some sort we're going to talk about that coming up a little later on also going to talk to uh the uh warplane heritage museum about a uh a listener who sent us a note in regard to uh a uh a person who died on a mission in france back in 1944 we'll tell you that story coming up a little later on also as the world slowly eases out of the pandemic what does it mean for those who want to date how do you date imagine that? Oh my goodness. Dr. Jess O'Reilly is going to be joining us to talk about uh coming out of a pandemic and getting back into dating. Also an interesting, uh, interesting article over the weekend which you're gonna ask Jess about uh in regard to your health you're healthier and you're happier if you are sleeping with your mate. I mean sleeping with somebody. I mean, I guess we all would be, wouldn't we? Um but you know, if you if you if you're sleeping next to your mate, you're um, your significant other, uh, and even see with pets, that you have a better quality of sleep and that you, uh, in the end, that's better for you. Although uh, I think you might have a hard time saying that to my wife because one of us in the house snores. What? What are you looking at me for? Uh, so h- how do you deal with that moving forward? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, give you an update in Ukraine and what is going on over there. Now we're hearing that, uh, Russia is using more heavier and deadly weapons. We'll talk to Christian Leprec coming up about that a little later on. Also, I give you an update on the January 6th hearings and, and where we are with that, uh, circus and, and continuing on. And, uh, yeah, around and around and around we go. Uh, more on that. And, uh, what else we got? Oh, yes, we'll give you an update on, uh, the sentencing and the victim impact statements in that horrific van attack uh, of years ago. You know, it, it's interesting. I and, and and you don't have to to watch a newscast or whatever to to see this, but. Uh, obviously with gas prices going through the roof and we all know how much it's costing us. Imagine if you're one of those people's, uh, one of those people, one of those entrepreneurs, one of those, uh, business people who use your vehicle all the time, need your vehicle all the time, need a vehicle, gotta put gas into that all the time. You know, I was even thinking the other day, what if you're like a, even a lawn company and you're doing, you know, your, your industry's lawn maintenance and such. It's like the, the price of, of, uh, of doing business now has, has gone up. And there was a fascinating story I saw over the weekend, uh, in regard to the, the CAA is reporting that more people are running out of gas because people are only putting a few bucks in cause they can't afford it. And you know, I, everybody's got examples of, of, you know, I, I've had, I got an old car. It's like 11 years old and it, it, it's, it's over double, double to, to what it was even just a, a couple of years ago at the beginning of the pandemic to, to fill up. It's, it's just unbelievable where this has gone. And, uh, you know, driving along this weekend, uh, uh, sure enough, as this story is saying, people are running out of gas. And I saw somebody on the side of the road with somebody with a jerry can helping them out and, and filling their, their, their car up. It's, and you just think, You know, you talk about the high price of food, the high price of this, high price of that. Well, it all gets delivered uh, by vehicle of some sorts, uh, you know, somewhere along the supply chain. So this is affecting the cost of everything. What about if you're a taxi company? Think of that. Uh, Let's bring in Jagtar Singh Chahal, Chairman, CEO, Hamilton Taxi, and with us now. Jagtar, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
4: Yeah, thanks very much for having me on the air.
2: So what's it been like in the last year or so for you Jagtar? What's give us an example just tell us what it's been like trying to run your company.
4: You know what we have been going through really hard time. First we have very high insurance. Yeah. There's no company insuring us we are on a facility paying really really high insurance rates then covid and now very high gas prices. It's really devastating for our taxi industry. Our drivers, before they were maybe putting 10% of their income. Now it's over 25 to 30%. They are just paying for the gas. So some drivers have like a hybrid car. And we do have some vans. And the drivers who are driving vans, they are really dying now. Mm. Some of them have switched. They have parked their vans. We have accessible cabs, and over 60% of our accessible drivers have switched to regular sedans because it's very expensive Mm. to operate a van. So it is going to be tough on accessible community and even people, when they have five, six people, they want to order a van. We used to have over 50% of Vans five, six years ago. Now we have only maybe 10, 15% of our cabs are Vans. And even those guys, they want to switch to regular small sedans. Mm. It is very tough time for our taxi industry.
2: And what about fare increases? Uh, it, it, well, is that any is that any help? Uh, how does that all work? And and even so, the prices of fuel have have gone up uh, unbe- un- unbelievably in the last year or so.
4: We had been asking the city for meter increase, and after five six months, we got one dollar meter drop from three ninety to four ninety. But the gas price is over 50 cent more when yeah. we got $1 meter increase. So that $1 meter increase was swallowed very quickly. And our taxi industry, our drivers are suffering because before we were thinking maybe it will be less than $1.80, 90. It's over $2.10, $1.15. Yeah. day it's going up and up.
2: What, uh, obviously, you've had to go through a, a pandemic. Obviously, as you said, insurance rates have, have always been an issue, have been an issue before all of this. Are, are you busier now at this point as things are opening up? Are things starting to pick up? Are at least you busier or busy?
4: Yeah, we are doing good. But the problem is, we, before pandemic, taxi industry had 470 cabs on the road. Now almost 200 taxis are still parked. We Mm. do not have full fleet on the road. Mm. So there are very few drivers and we are not attracting new operators and new drivers because insurance rates are very high. Now gas prices are very high and people are going for other alternatives. They're going for other jobs. We desperately need lot of drivers
2: so uh, what, what do you do here short term jagsar how do you what's how, how do you get by what's the solution for you guys
4: for the next year we are asking the city for help maybe they mm-hmm. should give us like a more meter increase per mileage so we are some drivers are switching to hybrid cars but the cars are very expensive to buy now too mm. And it is not very good future for the taxi industry if these things are not changed, if insurance doesn't come down, if gas prices doesn't come down.
2: Jagtar Singh Chahal with us, Chairman and CEO of Hamilton Taxi, uh, just one of the many businesses that suffer uh, when, of course, their costs go up, but they cannot increase prices specifically in this situation. Jagtar, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
4: Good luck.
0: Okay. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I ask you jump. That's an order. I gotta get frozen clear. Jump for God's sake! Before it
5: explodes.
2: What you heard was a excerpt from a uh, you know those heritage minutes that they have, and this is a good one. You got to look this one up, uh, and and you know we can't play the whole thing because it's visual and you know, it's radio, <laughs> so. But uh, well, I'll read you in the note, uh, Scott. This coming Monday, June thirteenth, twenty two, marks the seventy eighth anniversary of the death of Andrew Minarski while on a mission over France, June twelfth, thirteenth, nineteen forty four. The Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum's land. Pastor is named in his honor he gave up his life in attempting to rescue his dear friend Pat Brophy who was trapped in the rear gun turret after their plane was set on, hit and set on fire by a German uh, night fighter miraculously Brophy survived the crash uh, Minarski perished from his burns and eventually received the Victoria Cross uh, and uh, Mr. Lowe our beloved uh, retired history teacher and uh, resident scholar here on CHML helping us with these things. Uh, it was him that sent me uh, this note initially saying, you know, you should really chat about this and you should really find out what's going on. So if you're going to find out stuff like this, who do you ask? Dave Rohr, President, Chief Executive Officer of uh, of the Warplane Heritage Museum and is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
5: I'm doing well, Scott. Thank you.
2: It's amazing to watch this Heritage Minute. It just makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up.
5: It, it certainly does. And this story, is, uh, it's an unbelievable story of bravery and brotherhood, service duty and sacrifice. It's uh, an so unbelievable ex- story.
2: Explain what happened. Tell everybody what happened.
5: Well, uh, this crew, uh, KB-726BRA, uh, which was a, an aircraft, a brand new Lancaster Mark 10, built in Canada, uh, they would just gotten this airplane uh, a couple of weeks ahead, and uh, they had flown it for the first time on D-Day, believe it or not, and now this is now uh, June 12, 1944, and they're on a mission uh, to uh, hit uh, rail yards in Cambrai, France, and the uh, actual mission is a low-level mission, so they're going to descend from altitude, uh, and they're at about 5,000 feet, uh, descending to 2,000 feet to start the run-in for the target. And they're hit by a night fighter. And uh, Pat Brophy's the tail gunner, and he calls out the, the night fighter behind it. He sees the Junkers 88 go by with guns blazing. And moments later, uh, the right two engines are on fire. There's a fuel fire on the right wing, and uh, the captain calls a bailout. And everybody is able to get out, uh, except for when the mid-upper gunner, who's a uh, Carl, or, or I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, Andrew Menarski. He's about to jump out of the door, and he looks back and he sees his best friend in, a, in the tail turret, and he's jammed. The tail turret is jammed in a position where well, Pat Brophy can't get out of it, and so he's tried uh, to uh, do it using hydraulic fluid. But because of the hit of the fighters hit the hydraulic lines, there is no hydraulic right. fluid to operate it. Mm. He tries to do it manually, and the crank breaks. So. Andrew, his best friend, crawls through a fire, which is caused by the misting hydraulic lines, and the airplane's violently turning, and he crawls on all fours to try and manually open the turret, move the turret to get his friend out while the airplane's going down. He's on fire. Finally, when this becomes a futile experience, Pat Brophy's uh, saying, save yourself, please go. And he, he backs up. He keeps his eye on his friend. He backs up back to the, the door to which he jumps from. But before he jumps, he salutes his friend, who is an officer. And he says, good night, sir. And then he jumps to his death because he's on fire. And when he lands, mm-hmm. he dies of his his, his very serious it burns. The mm-hmm. airplane crashes. And in the way that it crashes, uh Unbelievably, Pat Brophy is thrown out of the turret and lands and actually survives the crash with no injuries. And, uh, and of course, no one knows what's happened in the crew because they've all bailed out. And it takes till September when, uh, through the French Underground, uh, Pat Brophy gets back to England and they inquire as to what happened to Andrew that the word comes out that there was a parachute and a person that was badly burned and did not survive, and, and it turns out to be Andrew Minarski. And uh, so Pat Brophy tells that story, and it's very, very seldom that on the testimony of a single witness, a Victoria Cross would be awarded the highest honour for bravery. Hmm. But because of this story, it is awarded posthumously to the to Andrew Minarski, and it it just... Uh, tells the story of all those who served in Bomber Command. You know, Scott, of the, of the people who served in Bomber Command, you had to do 30 operations to finish your tour, and there was over 120,000 that served. 55,573 did not survive their tour. And of that, about a third of Bomber Command were made up of young Canadians, like Andrew Minarski. 10,695 did not come home not to mention those that were POWs and injured, they didn't come home. And and this is a story of bravery, of brotherhood, of commitment, of service, of duty. And, you know, Andrew was the only serving member of the Royal Canadian Air Force to be awarded the Victoria Cross and Bomber Command. And so we're so honoured to, to fly our Lancaster, a Canadian-built Mark 10 Lancaster, marked as kb seven two six in honor of that entire crew and in honor of Andrew Menarski, And we proudly have that VC painted on the side of our airplane in memory of that duty, that service, and that sacrifice.
2: And as you said, I mean, there are so many stories like that, Dave. Like, well, there's so many stories like that.
5: You know, it's just, it, it, I mean, the sacrifice was immense. And and it had a big impact on the outcome of the war. And, uh, and you know, what, what did that generation do? They served their country in time of need. They came back, built a country, raised families, and never talked yeah. about it. You know, and it, it just, it's just so humbling when you think about it. The, the cost of freedom uh, that they paid for our freedom is, is immense. And so every day here is in, is Remembrance Day at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. But especially when we fly the Lancaster, the, you know, DRA, the Monarski Memorial, the Memorial Lancaster, we're honored to be able to do that and keep that memory alive. And, you know, before the flight, uh, they, they they were sitting on the grass outside, and Andrew Minarski picked up a four-leaf clover. Mm. And uh, he was looking at it, and he and uh, when they went to get on the airplane, he gave it to Pat Brophy, his best friend, and he said, Here, you keep this for luck. Wow,
2: wow, wow! That what an incredible story. Now you know this plane inside out. We've only got uh, less than a minute mm-hmm. left. You know this plane inside out. How would Pat Brophy have survived this, it, it, it stuck in well, the tail?
5: Well, you know, I think the best way to say that. I mean, there's no logical way. <laughs> it, you know, it, I yeah. mean, the airplane was going in. There's no logical way that he should have survived it. But in his own words, it's probably the best way to sum it up. Uh, Andrew was one of the very few in history to get a VC on the uncollaborated testimony of a signal witness. And, and this is this is Pat Brophy's words. And I'll always believe that a divine providence intervened to save me because of what I had seen so that the world might know of a gallant man who laid his life down for his friend. Whew. wow. Oh, that's, my. That's Pat Brophy's words. And I don't think you could say it any better.
2: And there's lots of this if you take a tour of the Warplane Heritage Museum. Uh, Dave Rohr with us, President and Chief Executive Officer, talking about the day uh, 78 years ago since the death of Andrew Minarski, uh, the mission in France, 1944. And that's, you know, the rest of the story. Dave, thanks so much for sharing that. Much appreciated. Be well.
5: Thank you, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity. Have a great day.
1: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's top 900 CXML.
2: Obviously, as you know, and you know, I guess before we were hoping to say now that the pandemic is over, but it really isn't over. It's just kind of living with it and moving on uh, with it. And and obviously, we're seeing travel and, and restrictions and such uh, mandates being lifted, and people are starting to get out and about more how has this all meaning a global pandemic changed the way we date because we remember no matter what it is way back at the beginning of all of this ah you know it won't take long we'll be over this in a minute in a minute or two and we'll all be fine we can eat and drink our way out of it but it literally changed everything we do including how you meet people how you date what have you been doing for the last two years uh, and and how do you sort of get back at it jump back on to uh the merry-go-round as they say uh let's bring in dr jess o'reilly sexologist relationship expert sex with dr com to find out more she's with us now jess it's great to speak with you i hope you're doing well
3: likewise it's been a while but i'm happy to be chatting with you uh
2: yeah i think it was probably before did we even chat during the pandemic i mean it was that bad we didn't even have a chat on the radio i can't believe that
3: Ah, you know, what is time, Scott? (laughs) It's long and short. It was yesterday. It was four years ago. It's all the same these days.
2: So what has it been like for those that were between relationships, single, what have you, during the pandemic, and now coming out or at least uh, getting back out after it all?
3: Well, the bottom line is it hasn't been easy. It wasn't easy before. It wasn't easy during. And uh, the transition back to the new normal is also not easy. Uh, One of the issues is really that, Everybody seems to be a little bit more tense, a little bit more stressed out, um, really looking to live their lives because either their lives were put on hold or they dealt with trauma or tragedy or loss or grief. And so everything feels a little bit heavier. And where I'm finding that a lot of people don't want to waste their time on relationships that aren't either meaningful or fulfilling. So that means that some people who uh, were together have broken up. People who were in the situationships have given them up. And people who are single, uh, many of them are on a mission to make sure that they're looking for the right type of relationship. They've really taken stock of what they what they want and they're not willing to compromise
2: it's interesting you say that because we hear that uh often when we're talking about people and employment you know I don't like my job I'm going to change it lots of uh, of opportunity and change going on there but obviously with relationships as well it, how have priorities changed what what is different i mean obviously there's protocol and I guess we have to be more careful but we've always had to be careful what's different you know dating now as opposed to pre-pandemic
3: I think one of the big things is that people really know what they want. So the daters that I'm talking to aren't just kind of playing the field and seeing what comes their way. They know what they're looking for, whether it's something casual or something long-term or even something very specific, like somebody who's willing to move overseas with them, uh, you know, sometime in the next five years or somebody who is ready to settle down and have kids. I think that, number one, people are going in with a clearer vision. Uh, I also think on a very positive side, people are communicating in more voluminous and meaningful mm. ways about not only what they want, but how they're feeling, right? I think that there was a lot of avoidance of intimacy in our in Western culture pre-pandemic, and I think that, you know, there's a couple of things. The pandemic, as well as kind of the next generation, the way they communicate, uh, we're starting to see a transformation here where we're willing to have more intimate and vulnerable conversations from the onset.
2: Wow, that's amazing. So almost like no games. I'm getting right to the point here. Uh, You know, I don't want to waste your time. Don't want to waste my time. I'm looking for that, 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 that. Does it work? Does it not work? Does that take the passion, the fun out of it?
3: I mean, it can. Let's be. Let's be honest.
2: I guess. I, I mean, the way I made it sound, of course it does. But, but yeah, I don't yeah. want to go
3: on a date with that guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, they've already figured that one out. But, but no, you bring up a very valid point. I mean, it's how do you get to that checklist? How do you? I guess you do that before you go on the date.
3: Well, that's actually the really cool thing, especially with younger daters and with people who are online dating, is that you can kind of get a lot of that out of the way beforehand. I was actually just speaking to a dating researcher today who was talking about the fact that dates are actually way more meaningful now when you meet in person, because you've already kind of got the chit-chat, you've made sure that you're a good fit, maybe your values align, your family or your sociocultural expectations align. So by time you get to meeting in person, you have the opportunity to just enjoy one another's company and tune in to what you're feeling, how you're feeling about yourself in the presence of this person instead of going through the checklist because you've sort of gone through the so-called checklist online. Now, we don't want people to be super rigid. Um I always encourage people to be a little bit flexible. Sometimes the things we think we want in a relationship actually aren't the most important to, you know, long-term love and mm. you know people want for example chemistry. Well, chemistry is something you can feel with you know, hundreds or thousands or more people on the spot, but can you maintain that over time? Are you willing to put in a similar amount of effort? Are your values really aligned? And so if you can kind of chat, chat about those things ahead of time by time you meet, hopefully you can sit back and kind of enjoy the ride.
2: Wow. Everything is complicated now, Jess, it seems, but it doesn't have to be. You can't walk in with this, but yeah, I, I guess that people are just, their priorities have changed and that's in everything, including searching for a
6: partner.
3: Yes, and also for people in long-term relationships. I mentioned that you know some people have broken up, and there you know there's different dating terms that will or trends that we'll see identified. You know, Plenty of Fish is one of the dating apps, and they talk about resigning, which involves ending a long-term relationship because you've gained clarity and perspective uh, mm. throughout the pandemic and you don't want any regrets because the reality is we all have to remember we've got this very short life to live like i mean you don't know me that well but i love life and i do not want to waste a day and i'm not saying i'd walk away from relationships without investing in them but how uh, many people are you know um saying yeah. you know what i i've been in this and i've been unhappy for four or five six years longer i think i i read that one in five Women have kind of taken part in that great resignation and a quarter of boomers who were surveyed by, by this uh, dating site Plenty of Fish found that. So really interesting stuff out there. And my, my hope is that it's always for the better because uh, we want people to live happy lives, whether that's in a relationship or out of a relationship. And I will also add this. I think it's so important. I don't think the measure of a relationship is its longevity. I really believe it's, it's about quality and fulfillment. So being together, uh, the mere act of staying together does not a happy relationship make
2: life is short i think we've all learned that uh, coming out of a pandemic dr jess o'reilly with us, sexologist and relationship expert sex with dr jess.com to find out more as always jess thanks so much for the time we won't wait as long next time uh, to see each other and and have this chat again thanks so much be well
3: i'll hold you to it thank you so much for having me
2: Uh, let's talk about the russian invasion of ukraine and i think we're in and around day 115 or so uh, and, and interesting, uh, information and, and, and pieces before, uh, the weekend talking about if Canadians, if allies, if everyone is, is growing weary of this, is losing interest in this, just as Ukraine needs more support than ever. Uh, and now we're hearing that uh, reports that Russia is now attacking with more deb- uh, deadlier weapons, stronger weaponry. To talk more about all of this, Christian Leprec with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well.
7: Yes, indeed. Good afternoon, Scott. Nice uh, spring uh, day. uh, It is beauty out there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, Christian, we remember various stages of this. Again, we're way over 100 days now. Uh, earlier on, uh, m- many thought this could this wouldn't last very long. And, and Ukraine, my goodness, what they've done and how they've stood up and defended their country, it's just nothing short of heroic. Uh, there was even chatter of nuclear weapons at the beginning of this, in the earlier stages. That sort of has subsided. But now we're hearing Russia, uh, Russia using heavier weapons. Where are we going with this? And is, does that mean, or does it should should people be concerned that, that the word nuke is going to come back into this?
7: So there's two dimensions here. One is that the Russians are running out of ordnance on some of their conventional uh, artillery, for instance. So they're using more unconventional weapons, um, and those tend to be weapons that are less precise, uh, in part because they're not really built for... For instance, for this type of uh, um, for this type of warfare, uh, if you're using missiles that are usually uh, used, for instance, for uh, for conflict at sea, as the Russians have been doing. The other is that the Russians, I think, are trying to escalate, and they're trying to see where the Western threshold is. That is to say, what the West has done is every time the Russians have pulled out heavier weapons, the West has has responded by effectively telling um, uh, telling Russia that they're willing to send equivalent type weapons to Ukraine in order to be able to contain Russia. The challenge now is the weapons that Russia has been using, um, if Ukraine is provided with equivalent-type weapons, it would mean that Ukraine would now have the capability also to strike Russia within Russian territory. And that would be a serious potential escalation of the conflict, and Putin has already signaled that that would be a red line for him. Certainly, uh, perhaps not the weapons themselves, but if one of those weapons were used to attack Russian territory So I think what Putin is doing is trying to push the envelope and basically say to the West, look, you're not going to be sending those types of weapons to the Ukrainians because you don't trust the Ukrainians with how to use them. And so this is, I think, a very interesting uh, way that Putin is trying to see to what extent he can leverage mass and scale that his military does enjoy, especially on this very tight front line to which the Russians have now shrunk the conflict uh, relative to uh, the Ukrainians' inability to to resist that mass and scale of the Russian armed forces
2: so does this continue to be tit for tat one uh, weapons up the other weapons up per se for lack of a better phrase and, and again where is that threshold where is that line in the sand where all of a sudden Putin says okay you keep doing that we're bringing in the really heavy
6: stuff
7: yeah, you can already see this. So we had a couple of weeks ago again sort of uh, uh, exercises by Russian nuclear forces. Uh, it looks like those were also directed at the potential deployment of tactical nuclear weapons, just kind of as a signal to the West that Russia has these weapons and reminding the West not to push too far. And then the aftermath of those exercises, we saw then saw the Russians more systematically using some of these heavier, more destructive, uh, less precise uh, weapons. And so I think this. Is sort of putin signaling that he will continue to escalate to achieve his military goals um, in this war of attrition that the Russians have effectively uh, started here. And so it puts the West sort of really in a bind and a predicament because the West also knows that uh, Western citizens in many cases are quite reticent about uh, the heavier equipment that is being provided or being talked about about being provided to Ukraine. So the West is sort of trying to deter by talking about heavier weapons. But as we all know, the West is also quite Uh, slow in actually providing these weapons on the premise that, yes, you have to train the Ukrainians. There is, of course, some truth to that. But I think much of this is still about uh, seeing whether the West can actually encourage Putin to return to the negotiation table um, and to engage in some sort of ceasefire. Because I think Western populations, as I think we've talked about in the past, are going to get war weary here they're going to get tired of this war they're Mm. looking at their gas tank it's costing them a third more to fill up today than it did on the day before the invasion they're looking at their energy bills their grocery bills their vacation bills and i think uh, putin is realizing that western populations might grow tired of supporting ukraine and the time is ultimately on his side
2: um why doesn't russia just go in and finish this for lack of a better term why? I mean, if he's going to do this, if he's going to take it, then why doesn't he just do it? Either he can or he can't
7: so i think part of the challenge is that the russians continue to struggle um even in trying to make the sort of smaller scale advances and the sort of scaled back ambitions i mean we're really on plan c at this point uh mm. possibly plan d in terms of achieving some sort of victory for putin beyond sort of what he's achieved in uh, in the south um so i think the the, the struggle here is uh, that russia is throwing everything it has at the fight Uh, at present uh, within sort of conventional realms, within conventional means, and is still not being able to dislodge the the Ukrainian defenders. And so, this is really sort of this the, very much a war of attrition. And I think part of this is NATO itself is, I think, a little flustered by this because mm. they haven't seen this type of maneuver style warfare since the end of uh, the Second World War. And so everybody's having to try to readjust. Well, how do you deal with a country that's basically fighting a 20th century type war that we all thought nobody was going to fight again, at least within continental Europe?
2: That's a very valid point. Christian Leprec with us, professor of both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, uh, talking about uh, where we are with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Christian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
7: Thank you, Scott. My pleasure. Have a great afternoon. (laughs)
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Still, we, we remember what happened uh, January 6th in Washington, and of course, on Friday uh, was it Friday, Thursday. Yeah, um, the uh, the first uh, or was it last? No, it wasn't last week. It's all a blur. Um, the, the first hearing was televised in prime time it was quite a presentation uh, many are saying that you're preaching to the choir that um, you know people's minds are made up on this it'll be interesting to see where this goes and what uh, comes out the other end of all of it let's bring in Gary Abernathy opinion columnist with the Washington Post and uh, his latest pretty fascinating uh, the January 6th committee may have bruised Trump but he is still standing and Gary is with us now Gary thanks for the time I hope you're doing well.
8: Scott, thank you. I, I'm calling, talking to you from uh, what we call Sinus Valley in southern Ohio, and I'm suffering seasonal allergies. So if I sound a little weird, I'm doing my best.
2: Oh, yeah, great to have you here. Uh, The pollen count's pretty high up here, uh, too, right now. Um, Are are we preaching to the choir here? Is this telling the same old story that people knew, uh, already knew, their opinions are already formed? Do they want to go over this again? What is the impact of these hearings on the American people, do you think?
8: Well, to me, putting it in perspective, um, they said that uh, Thursday night's hearing in prime time got about 20 million viewers. Mm-hmm. Which keep in mind that was across all platforms, all the broadcast networks basically carried it. Most of the cable, of course, famously Fox News decided not to carry it. But that um, the State of the Union address by Biden this year got 38 million, almost twice as many viewers. So not really a lot of interest uh, when you look at it that way. And I think a lot of it is Scott, just because, yeah, I think people have kind of made up their minds. And short of a really, you know, uh, a tremendous bombshell revelation that I can't imagine happening, um, I don't think it's going to change many minds.
0: Um,
2: What about the parties themselves? How do they, you know, maybe you're not going to change any voters' minds. Uh, You're either this or you believe this or you believe that. What about the parties? How does the Democratic Party come out of this? How does the Republican Party come out of this?
8: Well and that's what you hate to see something like this used for you know the New York Times just a couple of days before the Thursday hearing had a had a headline that said uh, and I mentioned it in the column uh, you know that this was a chance for Democrats to recast their midterm message um and if that's what it's all about you know fine I mean they've they've scripted this very heavily this is not being held like, a, like any hearing I've ever seen before, it would be interesting to have some cross-examination. And Scott, let me be clear for your listeners. You know, I was a Trump supporter, uh, and I'm still glad he was president, but I'm, I'm aghast at, at his refusal to accept the election results. I do think he kind of ignited that, that riot, that in, insurrection on January 6th, and I think it's right for people to s- decide not to vote for him again. I don't think it's right to prevent him from running legally to make a martyr out of him. Uh, and so far I don't see anything that that would make him criminally culpable in anything. So that's where I, so I'm not down I'm not someone who downplays January 6th at all. But I think that these hearings are so scripted. I mean people are literally reading the questions off of a teleprompter. Hmm. Uh, and that's not how these hearings typically go. Typically the witnesses would face some some really harsh, you know, cross examination, put them on the spot a little bit and that could be interesting, but that's not what we have here.
2: What about the testimony of Attorney General Barr and even Trump's daughter? I mean, that seemed to uh, get most of of the attention. Uh, What does that say when that close to the inner circle? And and I think uh, Trump's response was that that Ivanka wasn't necessarily tuned in to what was going on, but from what we understand, she was quite involved uh, in in the (laughs) day-to-day business anyway. So what about those two, just, you know, and and hitting that inner circle?
8: yeah, I mean, that's. I think you're right. I think that's the strongest testimony. But, it, again, it's not new. I mean, even yeah. when he was still attorney general, Bob Barr went on the record saying, uh, I mean, Bill Barr went on the record saying, um, uh, I don't have, there's no there there. I don't see anything to Trump's claims about um, election uh, fraud. So that was not new. It was just having him on video saying basically the same thing that that we've known for a long time, he said. "The Ivanka clips. I, I would like to see a little more of that because what they've played of her talking has been so um, uh, heavily, quickly edited, cut off really quick, yeah. and uh, I'd like to see more context to her, you know, to her testimony. So I don't know, but, you know, yeah, I mean, here's, what's, here's what, here's what, if today's hearing, if the goal of today's hearing was to prove that Joe Biden won the election and Donald Trump lost... Well, I think they proved it. But I'm not sure that's the purpose of the committee. And I, you know, they're trying to show that Trump knew he lost. Trump was told over and over, you lost, and yet he still stirred up all of this fraud allegation. Well, I don't care how many times Trump was told he lost. I don't think it's impossible to believe that to this day he doesn't believe it.
6: Yeah, you when know, exactly. you consider
8: yeah. his ego, uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say Donald Trump really doesn't believe he lost the election. So I'm not sure of the effectiveness, effectiveness of the committee going down that path.
6: So where does this leave
2: the Republican Party? At what point do they, you know, I mean, the fish cut bait here. What, what point do they just move on?
8: Well, yeah, I tell you, where it leaves the Republican Party is in pretty good shape, ironically. I mean, all predictions are they're going to they're steamroll through this November election for all the mm-hmm. talk about how terribly uh, wounded or, or in bad shape the party is. The truth is they're about to, if everybody's correct... You know, they're about to to have a tremendous election, and now if you talk about twenty twenty four, yeah, I think that uh, I think the party needs to go a different direction. I think you know I've said it many times, Trumpism is the philosophy of the party, and that's going to be around for a while. But it has to be Trumpism without Trump. You need a new standard bearer going into twenty twenty four because if Biden runs, which I think is a big if, Trump might be about the only person that Biden could win, could uh, defeat in a general election.
2: Hmm. So do you think Trump will run again, do you think, or, or just use his influence behind the scenes? I
8: think that if he, um, I think he wants to run again. It's, you know, I think his ego really wants the attention. I think he doesn't like to go out a loser. Um, so I, I'm going to say, yeah, he'll probably run. But I think more and more, Scott, as time goes by, There are more people willing to run against him, like maybe a Ron DeSantis in Florida or Christy Noem, um, who maybe at one time wouldn't have run if he was in the race. But now I think they're looking at the TV, they're looking at the polls, they're shifting a little bit. And I think that it's more likely uh, he's not going to scare as many people from running as maybe would have been the case a year ago
2: scares an interesting choice of words uh, gary abernathy with us from the washington post the january 6th committee may have bruised trump but he's still standing is the headline gary thanks so much for the time and insight much appreciated be well
8: anytime scott thank you
0: Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve
1: into the issue
0: until he is. You're listening to Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's Talk 900 CHML.
2: All right, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. Lost to chat with her uh, with today, Alyssa. I hope you're doing well. I hope you had a great weekend.
1: Yes, I hope you did too, Scott.
2: Uh, intro- I want to ask you something first, and I didn't. I'm gonna blindside you with this because we haven't uh, talked about it. But I know, I know, I hate when it's just terrible to even do this to somebody, or even set them up like this beforehand and say this. <laughs> but anyway. Um, There's been a rash of uh, threats in schools and such around the Hamilton area. And it's Hamilton certainly not unique to this by any means. uh, But police said, you know, we're going to find these kids. We're going to arrest them. We're going to make sure charges are laid, blah, blah, blah. And systematically, they have done that. Uh, Another one coming out today that they have uh, arrested for, you know, this, you know, something's going to happen June 3rd, blah, 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 blah. Um, I'm surprised at the amount of girls that have been caught up in this and that are being charged. Um, why am I surprised at that?
1: I think because you don't usually hear about young girls engaging in such activity. And now that they are, it seems like a surprise to us. So I think Mm. there's a lot of things going on here. Number one, why? Um, you know, we tend to look at crimes, with it's a gender lens, quite frankly. I mean, when you hear about a bank robbery, do you hear about like a group of women going to rob a bank? no. It's usually a bunch of, you know, a group of men. So when we hear that it's a group of women, we're thinking, wait a minute, this is odd. And I think that it bears looking into or asking the question, why? Why is this happening? And it really makes us sit up and take notice. So when you hear about violence in schools, we think, okay, this is happening everywhere. And then you put the layer of this other narrative about the gender identity of the kids doing this. And then people take even more notice. So if you didn't think it was a problem before or you were sort of like, you know, brushing it off to the side as kids will be kids. No, this is something different and it needs to be paid attention to.
2: You bring up a valid point because you said the kids will be kids. You know, it's a hoax. You know, it's like the kid that did, you know, for a prank pulls the fire alarm sort of thing. But this to me may scream more like kids asking for help, kids screaming for help.
1: I agree. And I think that, you know, we still haven't seen the full ramifications of kids who spent two and a half years in their bedrooms learning and mm-hmm. not in school and not develop- developing their social side of their behavior. So they have missed out on that developmental, very important, especially in as you're entering the teen years. So there's a, there's a lot of gaps in that knowledge. And some of that just comes with interacting with your peers or interacting with adults and teachers and that really hasn't happened. And it can't happen all the time during a screen because the teachers just trying to get the lesson out. So, yeah. you know, we are now dealing with those ramifications. And the fact that we see that young girls are moving on a violent track or contemplating that, that could be a direct result of this.
2: That's a very valid point. Um and again, after two and a half years of socialized uh, socialization and then uh, Blamo getting set uh, put into this setting, I've got you know my um, boy is fifteen, gonna be fifteen, and he started grade nine uh, this past year. Uh, and he talked about going to school and wearing a mask. And you think during adolescence how difficult that must be when you're trying to find your identity and what have you. and then you got you're trapped with this. You're wearing this you know on your shoulders as well. It has been a stressful time.
1: You know what, listen, kids of different decades and different centuries have all gone through stressful times. They've gone through the Depression, they've gone through world wars, and I have to say that, you know, they all came out of it. Maybe some were scarred, maybe some were not, but they all did come out of it and managed to move on with life. I think that this will happen too, but maybe in the interim, you know, we have to have some stopgap measures where we can address this before it becomes worse.
2: All right. Let's talk. Uh, interesting column in the Toronto Star by Susan Delacorte. I love her uh, in California. Unlike at home, the reviews are still glowing for Justin Trudeau. I saw a, uh, a, a news uh, breaking news thing from Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, they were falling all over him. Uh, it, it seems whenever uh, the prime minister has difficulty here, he just jets someplace where people love him.
1: You know, this is an old Trudeau gambit, and we saw this at the beginning when he became Prime Minister. He would go to Europe, he would go over to Asia, and there'd be screaming women, and everybody was falling all over him. And there's a little bit of Trudeau mania, which harkens back to, you know, when his father was Prime Minister. I still Mm. remember when I was in grade two, all those decades ago, Scott, and there were pictures of, you know... Uh, uh, P- Trudeau Sr. doing a summy off the b- of the diving board. Yep. So here you have, <laughs> yes. running back to another gambit, thinking, you know what? Let's try, let's go somewhere else. Let's, if the perception for me is better. And this is really just a way of turning the channel, turning the narrative, getting out of the bad news and creating some good news for yourself.
2: And, you know, I think we saw it as well uh, towards the end of the uh, freedom convoy thing or protest, whatever the heck that was, when he took off to Ukraine as the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, started. He had taken off then. And now everybody's, it seems, uh, It seems, Alyssa, the only person that is not talking about high fuel prices in Canada is the prime minister.
1: I know. And what is he going to say about it, right? It's going to be Exactly. There, There's
2: nothing he can and say Canadians about
1: it. Canadians are not buying it, whatever it is. And they're not buying a lot of other things because they can't afford <laughs> food and fuel. And it is a real problem. I'll be honest. I'm in Chicago right now. And, you know, the, the homeless situation and the desperation of people between the haves mm. and have-nots yeah. is very exacerbated, especially when you see it in the States. Uh, we are now seeing the tip of the iceberg that in our own hometowns, in our own cities. And unless something is done about it, it's only going to get worse.
2: Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, thanks for taking the time on your trip. Much appreciated. Take care. Be well. Thank you, Scott.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: We all remember uh, the day that Alec Manassian got in a van and drove up onto Toronto sidewalks and just basically started hitting people uh, at random. And today uh, he was sentenced to life in prison, 25 years, no chance of parole for 25 years. Um, and victim uh, impact statements also heard today, uh, a very tough day in the courthouse. Matt uh, Matt Carty is with us, reporter for 640 Toronto. He's with us now. Matt, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Obviously, a pretty tough day in the uh, courtroom today.
6: Yeah, Scott, thanks for having me, and you're, you're right. Obviously, very tough day in that courtroom, full of sadness, grief, and anger. We heard from friends and family of those who died from, from victims who survived and, and even just, you know, community members who live in the area, who still say they're there's they've lost their, they still don't have that sense of safety. And we heard from some who, who say, you know, they, they can't walk down the sidewalk with, with earphones on. And, and when they do walk down the sidewalk, it's, it's going towards traffic. So there's nothing mm. coming up behind them. So the, the trauma is definitely still there in in the community itself. And like I said, the, the things we heard today from from family members and, and friends, it's um, it was a tough day, full of lots of tears, lots of anger. but also uh, to Scott, just a lot of bravery. and uh, it was noted that Justice Ann Malloy gave a heartfelt thank you to everybody who read out their their victim impact statement. Thank you for being brave and coming forward. And, and speaking and giving your victim impact statement because it helps. And she did note that everything is being recorded and transcribed for that eventual time when Alec Manassian will be eligible for parole. Everything that was said today will be in front of the parole board when that hearing comes.
2: And we understand even the judge was emotional at times.
6: She was, she was very emotional. Everybody, it's hard not to be when you're, when you're sitting in that courtroom Hearing what these people have to say, and after each one, she, you could tell she was choking back tears. It was yeah, it was a very sad day.
2: And was Alec Manassian was was he there? Was he watching all of
6: this? He was in the courtroom physically. He had a mask on. There, they kept the mask mandates uh, going within that courtroom. He stared straight uh, after all the victim. I mean, we started at ten o'clock and it just wrapped up um, before five. And uh, he sat there, hearing every one of those victim impact statements, didn't show a lot of emotion. And then when it came for him to speak just before uh, Justice Sam Malloy sentenced him, she asked him, do you have anything to say? And he said, no, thank you, I don't. And that was the only thing we heard. After the sentence, he was put back into handcuffs, led away to uh, begin that life sentence.
2: So, for the most part, not showing any sort of remorse at all that anyone could see.
6: No, no, not from um, f- from from the vantage point that we had. Not from any of the reporters uh, that were or that were also in the in the courtroom as well. Um, and a lot of the victim impact statements as well pointed out that that um, that interrogation that got leaked out, where he sort of gave his reasonings. And that's where a lot of anger came from, is that mm. a lot of the people who read their victim impact statements said, clearly, he has no remorse. Clearly, he, he thinks it's a mission that was completed. And, and that's where a lot of the anger from the, the friends and family uh, came from while reading those victim impact statements.
2: And 25 years, uh, sorry, life sentence, 25 years uh, eligible for parole. Many say, of course, he's not going to get out. But these were uh, concurrent sentences, not consecutive. Any on Anything on that, on why that was done? And, and from what we understand, this is basically to save the families from having to go through the exercise of somebody trying to get parole. Uh, any reasoning behind that at all?
6: Right. And you'll remember a couple weeks ago, The Supreme Court of Canada made a decision in the uh, Bissonnette case uh, in Quebec about consecutive life sentences versus uh, concurrent life sentence. And they ruled that consecutive life sentences, so 25 years and another 25 years and another 25 years, that was unconstitutional. Um, So and that's what that's that's kind of why this manassian uh case has been on hold i mean he was found guilty in march of 2021 so now over a year later he's being Mm -hmm. sentenced and it hindered on the supreme court of canada decision which ultimately ended up being that consecutive life sentences is unconstitutional that is why he gets a 25 uh, or a life sentence with no parole eligibility until after 25 years and you're right i mean one day in it's 25 years since the since April of 2018. So uh, I think that's uh, 2043. I believe that is if my math is correct. Um, that will be that then will come the time uh, when the parole when he can ask the parole board to, to hear his case. And you're right, uh, a lot of family members and, and friends who are, who are still alive at that time will, will sort of have to go through this and, and may relive it at that time again.
2: So there you have it. Uh, Even moving forward with future sentences due to that Supreme Court ruling, uh, that's that's a thing of the past, obviously. Matt Carty with us, reporter 640 Toronto, covering the Alec Manassian case, uh, sentenced to life, 25 years until eligible for parole. Matt, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well.
6: Yeah, Scott, anytime. Thank you. You remember,
2: uh, or maybe you've just forgotten now, it's just a blur, and you, you know, uh, late. 2019, uh, there was a new virus that emerged called COVID-19. By March of 2020, uh, the whole world knew what it was about. Uh, there's been lots of chatter about how we got here and where it all came from, but we still haven't really pinpointed anything, which is odd, considering I remember talking to an epidemiologist after SARS and they figured out exactly who, why, where, when it all happened and where they could literally pinpoint the exact origin, the exact beginning of SARS. And I, I remember saying to the epidemiologist, that's incredible. And she said, is, and she said, ain't science great? Uh, and I remember uh, also chatting uh, with her later and saying it would be a matter of time before the same thing happened with COVID-19. However, we don't seem to be there yet. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. And with us now, Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am
9: well. Thank you, Scott.
2: Are you surprised we still don't have an answer to this? There still has been no comment. Uh, will we ever know?
9: Well, there's been comment from the Chinese, but they've been pouring cold water on the lab leak theory. I guess I'm not entirely surprised. What you said is quite right. In the early days of SARS, I was in Beijing at the time and working as a non-scientist in in crafting the Canadian government response from the Beijing perspective. We figured out fairly quickly that it came from civet cats, but it took another another number of years, almost a decade before they knew the exact species of bat. I'm not surprised. I think the Chinese will do this stonewalling about the lab leak, whether it came from there or whether it didn't, whether they know it did or they know it didn't. They're not they're in the denial mode. I don't think that's gonna change. On the Are other hand, Scott, I'm sorry, go, go ahead,
2: ahead. Think, go ahead. No,
9: go ahead. In the longer run, I'm optimistic that there will be there's enough people will know within China or have a pretty good idea. Um, China is not any longer a perfectly sealed hermetic flask, and things do come out. Even the internal government de- debates about Tiananmen eventually came out in a complete manuscript book written by one of the insiders. So I just, it's frustrating, and it's really important because knowing more might do more to help prevent the next one, but I think we're a long ways yet.
2: Uh, don't they owe us more than nothing happened here nothing to see here I, where do they I mean I'm obviously they there's the the rumors that oh, it actually came out of the United States why do they just not investigate the wet market theory very similar to the SARS situation and then that would take the pressure off the whole lab uh, leak story which at the very beginning of this uh, everybody thought was fake anyway so now as time's gone on more emphasis is put on the lab leak don't they want to know what the heck happened? happen or do they do you think
9: well to my in my opinion china doesn't always act in its own best long-term interest in the short term i get it i mean you own up to screw up let's but but there's still two possibilities and i think the the jury's out whether it's came from a natural source animal um in the in the chinese wet market or in the rural areas we're not sure that there's a lab leak in the short run yes of course china doesn't want to admit to any wrongdoing what the party does, especially in this year, the Congress, there could be no errors, everything's under control. But in the longer run, uh, they would be better off to, okay, let's open up, let's let our scientists be inter- uh, interrogated, let's bring in those foreign scientists under a, a broad team, let's try and sort this out. I still think it would take quite a long time. And I think in the long run, that would enhance Chinese credibility. But this, they frankly find it hard to get out of this, we do no wrong. And everything must be somebody else's fault.
2: I'm sure China is aware of how various countries feel about them, including this one, um, due to all of this. Um, Do they owe the world an explanation? Do they owe the world an apology? Will the world hold them to account for this? Because this has literally changed the world.
9: A powerful country is very hard to hold to account. Any of the great powers, be it Russia Russia, uh, China, United States, I'm not putting all three of those in the same category, except that they're all big. It's hard for world institutions or the rest of the world to hold them to account. That's what, that's what really should happen, that the United States, United Nations is supposed to be about, and the WHO in this case. WHO got a very slow start. I'm, I'm skeptical that uh, it will happen, uh, and it's truly unfortunate because they do owe an explanation. And of course, I say they, I mean China itself. I don't blame the individual scientists. I know lots of first-class Chinese scientists, but they operate under pretty strict control. In the long run, again, they would be helping protect. They've got 20% of the world's citizens. Yeah. They'd be helping protecting themselves for that matter.
2: Does China realize no one's buying this and that you can weave a tail all you want, but it's not going to change anything?
9: Well, yeah, I'd say yes and no. I think that they know very well that in the West, skeptical journalists such as yourself, uh, newspapers, investigators, even foreign governments will keep picking at this and are not about to just accept it as so because China said it is so. But I've always been surprised how much in the third world, for example, which is probably two-thirds of the world's population, uh, China has a a relatively high standing, more popular in general than the United States. And that puzzles me a bit. I think that they may lack activist journalists. They may have uh, not full range of information available. Uh, many of them live within despotic governments themselves, so it's a mixed bag. I think uh, that by China knows who will believe them, who doesn't. But it's a pattern even with their own citizens within China. I think a lot of I've met a lot of Chinese who are skeptical of things they read in the Chinese paper, newspapers, on media, etc. But I do find, for the majority. Um, If that's the only information you get, that's what you tend to believe.
2: What about China's reaction to the virus? Even now, most of the world has moved on. They still seem to be having issues, although getting better. Uh, The vaccine is inferior. It wasn't suitable for Omicron. Um, What about the fact that they haven't been able to get a handle on this?
9: This is a big issue, and it's a big issue within China, in my opinion, even though you don't see Apart from a few people shouting in apartment towers in Shanghai, opposition in China is there. Discontent is there. The fact that it's not visible doesn't mean it's there. If it's like a virus. You can't see it. We know very well that viruses and bacteria are there. And, and they are, it is a big problem right now for Xi Jinping, We've got the Party Congress coming up in the fall. He wants everything to be calm and held down. And I think for that reason, they're going to keep these lockdowns pretty severe until at least after the Party Congress in October. On the one hand, trying to be fair, they've avoided, I believe, a massive loss of life. And their healthcare system in the rural areas is very basic. The urban centers is reasonably good. They would have had a very high death toll. Lockdowns have helped prevent that, but at a huge cost. Their economy is going to grow more slowly than the U.S. economy for probably the first time in 40 years. Uh, and that's, it's not as if they haven't paid a price.
2: So, how will we view this in the future? Because um, again, it appears they just kind of wanted to go away; nothing to see here. Uh, but as time goes by and we get smarter and we learn more, uh, obviously, opinions are you know will advance. How do you think we will, the world will will view this event in in history?
9: I think in a historical context, uh, it will be seen. I think they give up, uh, maybe a. C plus, B minus to China's response in terms of protecting the population, but I think they'd give a D to the um, stonewalling on information. We don't know yet how crucial that might be. But if you had a core of international scientists digging away very slowly, painstakingly going over the data, rooting around trying to get to the bottom of it, the point isn't blame China. Mm -hmm. I, I don't believe at all the theory that this was something created. I think it's either a natural Occurring thing out of the, out of out of animals, or it's a lab leak. But yeah. I don't think the point is to rub China's nose at it. The point is let's get let's find this out, and then let's what can we do about preventing this happening again? But I think that looking back in time, it will be seen as a black eye for China.
2: Gordon Holden with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, still trying to find the origins of COVID nineteen and where it all came from. Gordon, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you very much,
9: Scott. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900CHML.
2: Man, what a series. This has been with the Hamilton Bulldogs. Game 1 uh, and Hamilton. Spite, uh, Spitfires beat the Bulldogs uh, in overtime. Game 2 in Hamilton. Bulldogs uh, beat the Spitfires 5-4. Game 3 at Windsor. Spitfires 6. Bulldogs 3. Uh, game four, which is last Friday, uh, Bulldogs beat the Spitfires in overtime, 3-2, and then... <laughs> on uh sunday man another three to two victory of uh, game six tonight in windsor at seven o'clock and if needed uh, uh w- another game coming up game seven wednesday uh that is in hamilton at uh at seven o'clock all right to talk more about all of this reed duffy is with us play-by-play announcer for your hamilton bulldogs he is with us now reed thanks for the time i hope you're well oh
10: scott always a pleasure to be here with you my voice as you can probably tell is uh Feeling the effects of this series. This has been a wild one. If we go to seven, I might need some shock paddles or something. <laughs>
2: this, is, uh, this has been quite a barn burner. And uh, to see Hamilton uh, over the weekend win in Windsor, uh, obviously uh, you know, a great advantage for them. But uh, this has been quite a series. I mean, my goodness, it's back and forth, back and forth.
10: Yeah, and, and that's the way that I think a lot of us expected it to go coming into this series. Windsor has shown great fight, great heart in them. And the Bulldogs have shown brilliant resilience every time that they've been tested and challenged. So I think both teams are are showing exactly what you need, exactly what you expect. And uh, I I don't think that uh, game six tonight is going to be any different. Both these teams want to win an Ontario Hockey League championship. And uh, I don't think either one's going to give up until that final buzzer goes.
2: And all of these games, with the exception of, what is it, a game three, where it was, the score was six to three, these have all been like one-goal games.
10: And that game three was closer than, than the scoreboard showed. It was 5-3 yeah. right up to the end, but the Bulldogs hit between goalposts and crossbars four in that hockey game, and that was without both Colton Kammer and Nathan Steos. So this series, there's been very little to decide from going either way through the first five games, and it was Mason McTavish who took over Game 5, made himself a story, and then Marco Costantini was save of the year at the end of the game to give the Bulldogs the 3-2 edge, and now we'll see what they can do for an encore just a little over 24 hours later.
2: So uh, what are you expecting? Because this is a tough barn to win in. It certainly
10: is, but the Bulldogs have been good on the road all season, and I think they're going to be prepared, Scott. Jay McKee has this team exactly where he wants them. He knows how to push the buttons, which ones to push, when to push them. And I I think that the Bulldogs are in really good shape here. Windsor is going to put up a massive defense. And I think that's what the Bulldogs are going to have to deal with. They are going to try to storm the gates, especially early. But the weird thing in this series, four out of five games, the team that scored first has lost. Hmm. I don't know why that is or what's going on there. But you almost start to wonder, as much as Windsor wants an early start, do they even want the first goal?
2: That is that is an interesting point. So uh, what do you think the chances are of uh, them ending all back up here in Hamilton uh, for a Game 7? Or do you think there's a good chance they could put it all to bed tonight?
10: Well, I, I'm, I'm going to have to be a complete disappointment and get out the old cup and ride the fence because I'm going 50-50 on this one right yeah. now because until we see something to pick from on either side tonight, The way this series has been played, it would surprise no one if it goes seven games. If Mason McTavish and Marco Costantini have the same type of performances that they did yesterday, and a back end with Arbor Jackeye and Nathan Staus and Artem Brushnikov and company holding Windsor's big guns in check, that's how the Bulldogs finish this thing off tonight. But as always, that is a whole lot easier said than done.
2: And what's the vibe in the room? I mean, are they still super focused? Uh, Because obviously this has been their most difficult challenge so far.
10: It's it's amazing, Scott. Jay McKee, I just talked to him a couple of minutes ago. It's the same thing that he talked to me about in October that he talked to me about tonight. And that's one shift, one period, one game at a time. Nothing has changed in talking to the players. They have not changed either.
2: All right, Hamilton Bulldogs could potentially win the OHL championship with a win in Windsor tonight. If not, game seven back in the hammer uh, coming up on Wednesday. And Reed Duthie, play by play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs, has been with us. Good luck tonight and uh, maybe got a few f- uh, throat lozenges, whatever in you to uh, kind of maybe some tea and lemon to get that voice ready for the game tonight.
10: Oh, I'm working on it, Scott.
2: Thanks so much. All right, Reed Duffy with his pay- uh, play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, Bulldogs tonight in Windsor. Game time, 7 o'clock. Could wrap it all up, or uh, if uh, Windsor comes back, could force a Game 7 coming up on Wednesday. It's going to be another barn burner tonight.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
2: That's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. Is always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Liz and Will for producing. Thanks to Diana and Dave in the newsroom. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer, to have the last word
4: on this Uh, incident with the man that died and uh, the people that died and the perpetrator sitting in the courts listening to all the hell that the victims are going through he is just relishing in the pain that he has created and he does not deserve to be able to enjoy the pain and suffering that he's created uh, for these people the victims and as far as i'm concerned he should be put down so that he can't
0: relish the pain that he has inflicted on all these victims